Today on CityCast Portland, we're talking about the largest ever alleged heist against a single person in Oregon, and ancient birds with deadly feces taking over a bridge in Astoria. Plus, we're diving into our listener mailbag to hear about your thoughts on last week's episodes. Joining me to round up the midweek news is our very own host, Claudia Meza. It's Tuesday, January 30th. I'm John Natariani, and this is what Portland's talking about. Welcome, everyone, to the Midweek Roundup. It's the day when we check in on some of the stories from late last week or over the weekend that we might have missed. Hey, Claudia. What up? How you doing? How's your weekend? You know, it was chill. I think, let me see. Oh, I went to go to the Rose City Roller Derby like the double header. Oh, the the season opener, right? Yeah, it was a season opener. It was really cool. I didn't get tickets for the double header. I just saw the opening uh, bout, which was awesome. I had a great time. And then I went to go to a comedy show last night. So Oh, cool. Where'd you go? I went to Helium. I saw yeah. Leslie Liao. Uh she's like a TikTok comedian. Yeah. Uh I find droll. Awesome. Cool. Um, yeah, I made it out this weekend, too. I went down to the Jack London Review and saw Paolo Angeli. Um, I don't know if you've made it down to the Jack London, but it's such a great space in the winter, you know, because it's downstairs and it just sort of feels cozy and it was like crowded. And yeah, it was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to Susel, the restaurant underneath Khan. I'm doing Dry January, did some like amazing mocktails there. And big tip. If you go to Susel on like a Wednesday, Thursday, Sunday and like actually make reservations, then you're going to get priority for reservations at Khan like two months later. Nice. So if you're looking to get in, they have somebody who like came around to all the tables and they're like, well, here's what March looks like. Do you want to come to Khan? I didn't actually make a reservation, but if you're trying to get in, that is like the way to do it. Yeah, we've talked about that, uh, I think, when we were discussing cocktail bars, because Susel's more of a cocktail bar than a restaurant, I would say. Yeah. Um, Well, let's get into the news of the week. Uh, Claudia, what caught your eye recently? You know, what I was looking at was a story by Oregonian reporter Maxine Bernstein. She wrote about this crazy heist where this Portland limousine service, which was like a husband and wife duo, stole something like $34 million from an incredibly wealthy Oregon-based publisher and political activist named Wynne McCormick. Uh, Did you... I didn't know who Wynne McCormick was before this story. I, I had to look it up. And once I once I Googled his name, I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy. I mean, he's been around. He's been a heavy hitter in media. Yeah. Uh, both in Portland and nationally, right? Yeah, like he owns a Tin House Publishing, which I've heard of, mm-hmm. and he publishes The New Republic. Uh, but the way he amassed his wealth was he was an, he's an heir to like this Midwest banking fortune. Because uh, I was like, I don't think you make a gajillion dollars by doing Tin House Publishing. And I was like, nah, yeah. you don't. You don't. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you Didn't know? he have a stake in like Mother Jones as well? Possibly. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me because he's a huge donor to the Democratic uh, Party. So that mm-hmm. would be aligned. But um, this is what floored me, John, is that all of the money laundering happened over the course of seven years. So the duo, which is Galena and Sergey Lebedenko, they were the owners and chauffeurs of this limousine company. And back in 2016, that's when they started making these bogus charges to an American Express card that they had on file for McCormick. And let me just read you this quote from the story, just to explain the immensity of this. I mean, I know that $34 million already says it, but like- $34 million. (laughs) 
Yeah, but federal agents, this is this is what they said. They're like, federal agents seized what assistant U.S. attorney Ryan Bounds called eye-watering. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love that description. Amounts of money and gold from the couple's homes in Portland and Sun River while executing search warrants. So they found $100,000 in cash, 150 ounces of gold bouillon worth about $300,000 and 12 firearms. Uh, but that's not all. They also had a private jet. Uh, of course, several homes, and they have like evidence of that. They just took a, a ton of lavish vacations. Like they really set themselves up real nice. Yeah. And this is the single largest alleged theft against a single person. Sorry, I, we, we always have to say alleged for a podcast. Yeah. Um, in the history of like Oregon's federal court system. So this is like everybody was like, "I'm sorry, what?" But what I think is even like crazier is that. Can you imagine being so wealthy that someone fleeces you for $35 million and it takes you seven <laughs> goddamn years to even notice? Like, according to FBI records, in 2019 alone, the couple stole $9 million from a Cormac just charging his card. Yeah, I, this is unbelievable. It's like the ultimate chill boss story, you know, of just like, yeah, you know. So there, there's like some texts in the story, right? Mm. Of like between the two of them. And there's this one that I loved. This is from uh, McCormick to the people who stole all this money. Quote, Sergey, American Express tells me you've charged about $300,000 over the course of October and November, probably more. I warned you about this. You and Galena didn't pay any attention. <laughs> Gentle scolding. If this keeps up even a little bit longer, you'll be fired for sure. <laughs> so it's not like you stole $300,000 from me, you're fired. It's like, if you keep doing this, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> and this is what's really sad. Okay, so first I was like, what? He just kept, you know, renting a limousine. I don't get it. But yeah. they really did take advantage of McCormick's trust because he's like almost 80. And he had been hiring the couple not only to drive him around, but like they were basically personal assistants. They were running errands. They were house sitting. They were fixing things around the house since 2006. That's almost yeah. 20 years of what he thought was like almost a family. Like they were such close friends that of course- he would never suspect. He'd just be like, what are you guys doing, you little rascals? Stop it. Yeah. Um, so like you said, Sergey would text McCormick saying stuff like he thought of him as a father figure. And I read more of these texts and it's just so sad how they were emotionally manipulating him. Like, mm -hmm. I know it's a crazy heist story and there's all this like kind of, I don't know, like Cohen-esque brother shenanigans, but ultimately this seems like elder abuse, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like I was just yeah. like, damn, this sucks so hard for this dude who thought these two were his friends. Yeah. Um, but did you see the defense lawyer, what they're trying to make this seem like, which is just ridiculous? No. Well, they were like, well, the Lebedenkos were treated like personal servants to help gain sympathy, which I'm like, that's not going to work. And also a federal public defender even had the gall to argue that the Lebedenkos had built a thriving business since arriving in the United States in the 1990s from Ukraine. Uh, so there's no reason for them to get locked up or like, you know, like, hey, man, like, because they're just not out on bail because they're just like, they're a flight risk. They have a private jet, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I mean, $34 million in profit. I'd say that's a thriving business. Well, I think stealing from <laughs> one dude for seven years is not technically a business, John. That was literally 
only client they had was McCormick. <laughs> so then <laughs> that's what basically the FBI was like, I'm sorry, that's not a business. That's called stealing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the thing that drives me crazy about this, like on one hand, obviously Mr. McCormick, he's an heir to this fortune. He had a lot of money, like, but the way that he was spending this money is on projects that are really great, you know? Um, did you ever read Tin House, the magazine, when it was in publication? Yeah, and I I could have sworn that they also had, like, an outpost at one point because I thought I went to, like, a... I thought there was an actual bookstore because I feel like I was like, oh, I remember Tin House. They had an office in Northwest, um, and I think they still do. It is actually a house with tin on the sides. Cute. So it is, like, an authentic Tin House. But, like, as a literary publication, Tin House was doing all this incredible stuff and, like bringing out all these voices of authors that you wouldn't hear before, um, you know, and they did close down in 2018. I'm not saying that this is correlated to that. Um, I'm sure that that was a business decision and the publishing arm is still active. But like, yeah, it sort of sucks that this guy who, even if he is ultra wealthy, was putting that money into projects that like seemed pretty cool. Yeah. And also, isn't American Express supposed to be great at this? Isn't American Express like the ultimate like fraud Ooh. protection company? Exactly. Isn't that like their whole brand? Like they'll oh notify God. you if somebody spends $30 on your card. <laughs> I can't even imagine. All I could think of is that they mm -hmm. they had a lot of forged signatures or like they, yeah. they were his personal assistants, basically. They did a little test. They got away with it and they realized mm -hmm. that his accountant wasn't actually really paying close attention. Yeah. Ugh. And they just figured a way in. Ugh. Well, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's talk about some more headlines of the week. All right. Well, my story actually comes from our own Rachel Monahan. Uh, it Ooh. is something that I read in Hey Portland, our newsletter, and it came on the back of some reporting by Nigel Jayquist at Willamette Week and then Linda V. Mapes at the Seattle Times. And it's all about double-breasted cormorants. Do you know about these birds? You know, I only know what you told me last week where you said they were sort of ducks. And that's all I can think about is sort of ducks. <laughs> They're duck-like. Um, one fun fact, uh, their fecal matter is so deadly it can kill trees. That is <laughs> awful. So like they'll be like nesting in a tree and they'll shit and it will kill the tree and then left to move to a new one. What an awful calling card. I'm sorry, but that's yeah. just like an awful <laughs> They're also really crazy good at hunting salmon. They can like dive 25 feet underwater. Um, and you know that we've had this problem with salmon being eaten, with salmon populations being depleted, mostly because of humans, but there's been all these efforts to restore the salmon population, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in 2016, the Army Corps of Engineers killed thousands of these birds and drove them off of East Sand Island, which is this little island sort of in the mouth of the Columbia where it meets the Pacific. The whole idea was we got to get rid of these birds to protect salmon, which like seems like a good idea, right? Mm. Well, this idea totally backfired, and it ended up that 10,000 of them decided to start living on the Astoria-Megler Bridge, that bridge right outside yeah, of Astoria. Yeah. And like per bird, they estimate that they're killing more fish because there's fewer varieties to choose from at yeah, this location. because that's basically the salmon run right there. So now there's this new plan. Uh, the Oregon Department of Transportation wants to spend $40 million to relocate this flock of birds 
back to East Sand Island, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> where they had been originally. So it's this crazy, like, trying to, like, outgame nature story that is totally not working. When will man learn? And now they're thinking about going back to square one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> We're not good at outsmarting Mother Nature. We've never been good at it. Yeah. Okay, so I remember you telling me about these birds because you were really fascinated, you know, when this story came out. Um, and I realized, I'm like, oh, wait, I do know those birds. I've seen those birds dive down. And it's crazy how yeah. long they go under because I'm just like, did that bird die? And it'll just come up with a fish in its mouth. And I didn't know because when I saw pictures, I totally see the sort of duck where I'm like, yeah, I would think that's a duck. But when you see it in flight, you're like, no, that's like a seabird, yeah. like a jacked duck. <laughs> The other thing that they're really iconic for is like sunning themselves because they have less oil on their feathers than a normal duck does oh. or a normal bird, which allows them to swim way quicker. Of course. But then yeah. they come out of the water and they're like sopping wet. So you can see them on the bridge, like sort of stretching out and trying to dry off really well. Um, yeah. The guano uh, causes a million dollars in damage every year to that bridge. Oh, my God. <laughs> a million dollars of bird poop. That's so um, gross. And in Nigel's story, he said five or ten of them collide with vehicles daily. <laughs> Man, I hope they figure that out because that sounds awful. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Like, I mean, we've seen so many stories about these efforts to like corral species that are killing other species that we're trying to protect that don't end up working out, though. You know, I mean, this has been going on with sea lions in that area for mm -hmm. at least a decade, right? Like sea lions also eat a ton of salmon. Uh, and then... That's <laughs> what they're known for. You know, and then we've been trying to kill the sea lions to protect the salmon. And then, of course, conservationists are like, wait, no, we can't kill all these sea lions. It's like... Oh, my God. Yeah. And if anyone knows, if anyone stayed in Astoria, like... They didn't do a good job. There's nothing but sea lions there. And yeah. I love staying at this Hamptons Inn or whatever. If you stay mm -hmm. there, there's actually earplugs in the front for the sea lions when you go to bed because they're so loud that people mm -hmm. complain. So they try to make it seem like a feature. Like, it's not awful. It's a feature. And I actually agree. I love it. I love the sound of sea lions barking at night. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's loud. Yeah. I remember my first Astoria sea lion run in. Do you remember the old buoy brewery? Oh, yeah, at the bottom. Yeah, the, yeah. The brew house, um, which I think it like partially fell into the, the water a couple years ago. It like collapsed. Do you remember this story? Well, actually, I don't remember the story. I drove expecting to see it because I always stop <laughs> by. I think we were texting and you're just like, you know it fell into the river. And I was like, yeah. what? And that was the story that I learned it from was you telling yeah. me that it was gone. <laughs> well, anyways, for anybody who never made it out there, they had these glass floors where you could look down and see the sea lions like chilling out on mm -hmm. like the, the planks of the deck. But you get there and you see them and they're like 20 feet away from you and they were gigantic. They were fearsome. I was expecting something sort of like cute and cuddly. And it's like, no, no these things look like killers. And they <laughs> smell. Like, I just kind of loved how they embraced it. They're like, man, this isn't going away. And I'm like, yeah, that's how you handle nature is you make it a feature because you're just like, because it is. Yeah. Um, but you know what I love about the sort of ducks is that. <laughs> I feel like what they just did is they expanded their reign. And so now they're going to try to corral them back. But they're just like, nah, there's some good fish in here. And so now there's going to be two populations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's what I really think is going to happen. Gosh. Um, well, Claudia, before we wrap up, let's go to the mailbag. Let's take a look at what some of our listeners have been saying. Before we go into the mailbag, I came up with a uh, segment transition music. It would be like, 
like a like a train sound. And then instead of all aboard, it would be like mailbag. And if any listener out there wants to do that for us, we will play it. We'll put it in here as a transition because I feel like it's needed. Yeah. Next week. I would love to get that in. <laughs> mailbag. Mailbag. <laughs> So anyhow, yeah, so I got an email. Brian of Montevilla wrote about our episode where Eater Portland editor uh, Brooke Jackson Glidden gave us her top restaurant picks for the J District, and he had a few choice notes for us. Mm -hmm. He noted that Brooke had some solid choices, but then had to address some, and this is his quotes here, misses. Now let me read from his email. The biggest miss is including Yawa Rat on the list. It's not part of the Jade District. It's in downtown Montevilla. <laughs> I have to agree with him on that one. That's a pretty bad miss. But in Brooke's defense, I kept bringing up places that were like straying away further and further from Jade District. And I think I did that to her. I led her astray. So my apologies. It's not Brooke's fault. Yeah. Brian also mentioned that uh, he had his own picks for a handful of bubble tea and coffee shops actually in the Jade District. And I Googled mm -hmm. them all and they all were in the J District. Uh, it's Tosla Tea, T4, which is on 82nd, and Ocha Tea House. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is like my North Portland cards showing. Because if I'm driving a half hour to get over there, it's like once I get into that part of town, it's all the same to me as well. So thanks for cleaning us up with your East Portland knowledge. Um, and I want to go to Yarrowat. I mean, it's been getting all sorts of acclaim since it opened up. That is definitely like near the top of my list of places to check out. Yeah. Didn't Yarrowat get like, was that a name like best restaurant of the year by one of the yeah. monthlies or something? Like Portland Monthly just like gave it that. Oh, okay. Well, I'm also looking at a food focused uh, response. This is from Olaf. Uh, on a sort of sidebar conversation we had on Friday when we did our roundup with Sophie Peel. And this is what Olaf had to say. Uh, on your last episode, you briefly talked about Taco Tuesdays and made it sound like some kind of cultural appropriation story between a white guy and a white-owned business and implied that there was a megabuck settlement. Actually, the real story is much more positive. It's unclear whether there was a financial settlement, but either way, the phrase Taco Tuesdays is now in the public domain. Anyone can use it anywhere in the U.S. You know what's so funny is that Sophie brought us that anecdote because she had listened to it in a like Wall Street Journal podcast. And all I can think of is that she was listening to it while she was in Mexico, like indulging in her own Taco Tuesday. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think she was like probably a couple margaritas deep. <laughs> like what she got from that was the story she gave us, which by the way, was a fantastic story that she gave yeah. us. And I was just like, wow, this is like, you know, that telephone game, but with podcasts. The thing is when I saw this come in, I was like, oh my God, that's hilarious. I love how wrong we got that, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, Taco Bell is at the center of it though, you know? She got that right. Yeah, she yeah. didn't get that right. I'm saying there are some like <laughs> mega corporate interests at play here. Um, speaking of Taco Bell, have you seen this Taco Bell ad campaign that they've been doing with like indie artists? No. They've got like hardcore bands like Military Gun and Scowl like doing Taco Bell ads now. And they just did one with Portland's own Portugal the Man. And the whole conceit of it is that they have these bands talking about uh, how great Taco Bell is to them when they're on the road and sort of talking about how when they're touring, they're surviving oh, on Taco no. Bell. Mm -mm. Um, no. You used to tour in bands. Did you ever? No, of course I didn't do Taco Bell. No, you can't do that. <laughs> that is like straight up like stomach issues. You just never know. Yeah. Um, also, I just want to, because I don't think we said it, but the whole point that Olaf was saying was just that Taco Bell actually liberated the term Taco Tuesday. 
that was a story is that they're the ones who fought this dude. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone could use Taco Tuesday. And I love that it was Taco Bell. Like Taco Bell went to bat for all of us to be able oh to have gosh. a Taco Tuesday um, without a TM somewhere. I don't know why. I just thought that was really funny. <laughs> Thank you, Taco Bell. Yeah, but yeah, no, I did not eat Taco Bell on the road. That's gross. Well, thank you so much to everybody who has written in or given us feedback on the show. Uh, and we love to hear from you. We would love for you to shoot us an email at portland at citycast.fm if you have any feedback. Or you could leave us a voicemail. We would love to play voicemails on the show as well when we get them. 503-208-5448 is our number. All right. Well, Claudia, thank you so much for getting into the headlines with me today. And uh, I wish you a happy Taco Tuesday. Thank you. And a happy Taco Tuesday to you. <laughs> a happy Taco Tuesday to everyone. <laughs> That's all for us today here on CityCast Portland. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend or leave a rating or a review for us? We'll be back tomorrow morning with much more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. Slim's.